Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland. Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer. <laughs> All right, so here we are to discuss Michigan's very own co-ed killer. Are you ready for yeah. that? I am so psyched because I've heard so much from you over the years, but like, I really only know the bones of the case. Haha, <laughs> bones. Uh-oh. So <laughs> this, like, I, what I didn't, I didn't know how much I didn't know about this case. I've known about this case for my entire life. It has been like a part of kind of local not lore because that sounds like it's a, a story but it's very much so real just been kind of like a part of the fabric forever but there's a lot of just misinformation out there and uh, a lack of information so uh there's such a i don't i cannot believe how like little this guy gets covered yeah yeah and that is something that i think is really interesting because he's i mean he's a legit serial killer and he's handsome as hell. And usually those ones are making all the headlines. Yeah, right? And he predates Bundy. That's the thing that I think is really interesting. Like, we are, I think we have this kind of conversation in true crime that, like, Ted Bundy is, like, the OG serial killer. That... Dude, fuck Ted Bundy. I'm so done with Bundy. I know. Me too. Me too. I'm over <sighs> it. Over it. Yeah, this case is like, like you talked about Erica Baker being like the case that made true crime really real for you. This is the one for me, even though it happened like 20 years before my birth. This is the one like it was so in my backyard, not literally mm -hmm. close enough. And uh, it just really hit close to home. And I feel I always kind of felt like there was just this injustice in how much it was talked about and covered. So it was really important to me to do this as kind of one of our first cases. Yeah. I'm so excited to hear about this one. Yeah, so uh, he's had a few like nicknames in the media. Co-ed killer is what they called him most often, but Ed Kemper is also called the co-ed killer sometimes. I feel like there's multiple other co-ed killers too. Like, yeah. I loves me some alliteration, but... I know, me too. And then they were calling him the Ypsilanti Ripper for a while. I kind of like that. We'll go with that today. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so we'll call him the Ypsilanti Ripper. So uh, I'm going to start off by reading a letter that was ran on the front page of the Ypsilanti Press on April 21st, 1969. So this day was important because this was the day of the funeral for 13-year-old murder victim Don Bassam, uh, and it was to be held that day. And this letter is from a woman named Sandra Flazar, who is the sister of the first victim in this string of killings. She is fed up. Here's what she says. Have you ever walked from class to class on campus without looking over your shoulder for fear of someone watching you? I haven't. Have you been able to see without waking in the middle of the night from an endless nightmare? I haven't. Have you ever had a stranger smile at you and want to smile back, but have been afraid to? I have. Have you ever driven down Gettys Road without shedding a tear? I haven't. I am the sister of one of the five victims of the brutal perverted murders that have taken place in this community within the last two years. 
My sister was the first. Whose sister will be the last? Many of you will read this letter and pass it off by consoling yourselves with, it could never happen to me. But I believe that after five of these slangs, it should be obvious that the murder has no respect of persons and that any one of you could be next. I think it is time for the people of this community to exercise their rights as citizens and do their part to see that justice is brought about. I am therefore making a personal appeal, not only for myself, but for all young girls who live in this constant fear of our very lives. This appeal being that you, the public, come forth with any information you may have, which in some way may be relevant to these murders. Sincerely, Sandra Flazar. That really kind of sticks to the bone, I think, of just kind of why this case was so difficult kind of in this area. So I want to kind of set the scene first and also kind of set one of my theories for why there's not a lot of coverage. It's just a theory, but it's something that I find kind of really problematic, even though it was part of my formation of understanding this case. Um, this case of the Ypsilanti Ripper takes us to 1967 in the Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti area of Michigan. So uh, Ypsilanti, we, we locals call it Ipsy. Ipsy. Ipsy most of the time. So that's, I'll probably slip into that, but I'll try to say Ypsilanti as much as I can. <laughs> but my theory is that nobody can pronounce Ypsilanti. No, they can't. If I had a nickel for every time that somebody mispronounced it to like make fun of it and it got under my skin, I would have a lot of nickels because it annoys me <laughs> a lot. <laughs> my grandpa used to talk about it a lot because like my grandpa was from Toledo and he always said it was such enthusiasm. So it was like, Ypsilanti. Aw, it's so cute. <laughs> 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 so Ypsilanti is the centerpiece of this case, Ypsilanti, Michigan. Uh, and it is like tucked next to Ann Arbor. Uh, so two college towns and they're very much neighbors in Southwest Michigan's Washtenaw County. So that's the county that would be to the immediate west of Wayne County where Detroit is and where I hail from. Yay, we love Wayne County. We sure do. So Ann Arbor is obviously home to University of Michigan. So huge, huge mm -hmm. university. And then Ipsy is home of Eastern Michigan University. What I think kind of existed there and still exists there is a little bit of like a, the two different universities also really kind of underlie the differences between the two towns in my mind. Like I'm glad you said that because that's what I always think about those two, yeah. Eastern Michigan and Michigan. Yeah. Like just drastically different, but right next to each other. They're so different and the cities are so different as a result. Like University of Michigan is massive campus, like preeminent university, big deal, research university. And then Eastern gorgeous, fancy. Oh, yeah. And like so aspirational, right? Like you're a kid growing up in Michigan. That's where you want to go to college, you know, mm -hmm. unless you're from an MSU family like mine. So sorry, I said that, mom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like I want. <laughs> Anyways, so uh, Eastern Michigan uh, is one of the directional schools, you know, easier to get into, more of your kind of hometown school, more of commuters, uh, although it does have campus life and it did then too. Um, and actually in this day and age, like in the 50s and 60s and 70s, it was known as like kind of the premier education university in the state. So it was a great option for aspiring educators, which I think is awesome. So... Uh, interestingly, Ypsilanti at the time had about 20,000 people uh, population-wise and is still about the same. Ann Arbor had 67,000 people at the time, but is now boomed to over 100,000. So big growth in Ann Arbor, not as much in Ipsy, which I think is really interesting to kind of help like paint the scene. Like Ypsilanti, 
uh, and its outlying areas, like definitely more rural, although now it's kind of all built up in this like exurbs from Detroit to Ann Arbor. The kind of urban sprawl doesn't really end. But back in the 60s, it would have been very rural, very agricultural, um, kind of mm -hmm. outside of the city center. Definitely more working class, less affluent, and again, like a lot of agriculture and a lot of blue collar work. And then by contrast, Ann Arbor was like super hip and progressive and like a swinging place to be in the 60s and kind of became like an epicenter for like the cross section between education and politics. Mm -hmm. They spoke there uh, famously and actually like proposed the inception of the Peace Corps during a speech there in 1960. So, oh, that's cool. That's a yeah. fun factoid. I like that factoid. He actually, I saw this like beautiful picture of him just like beaming on the steps at one of their fancy buildings on campus after that speech. And I was just like, oh man, how cool is that? I mean, he beams, that campus beams. Oh, it really does. It's just such a beautiful place. And, you know, like, again, like there was this huge dichotomy between the two cities and the two universities. And then like, I think in some ways, some of the transitional culture between the 60s and 70s also kind of we're at a crossroads there too like you've got this like post-war kind of american traditionalism on the one hand and then we're like bleeding into like free love and free expression in the 70s and like we got this like cultural push-pull going on you know and i think in some ways like you could see either city is sort of symbolizing those like ypsilanti definitely that more kind of conservative like hometown feel in an arbor like much more kind of progressive and really like student centered and the university is kind of part of like the lifeblood of the city. Mm -hmm. um, and for Ipsy, it's kind of like there's Eastern and then there's Ypsilanti. So like, I think that there's probably at least like from what I was researching about how this was kind of going down in the media in the sixties in Ann Arbor, like the university is like very much, like I said, like part of the fabric of the city and it kind of weaves like into everything. Whereas in Ipsy, it felt like it was like, you're either part of EMU or you're a townie. And I think that really kind of informs how this case was portrayed in the media too. Sounds pretty idyllic, right? Beautiful. I mean, not really, but okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it does to me because I'm homesick. <laughs> it sounds like a class war. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> The idyllic class war. I mean, yeah. Yeah. When you put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I love your idea of idealism. I mean, I'm thinking more about like farmland and agriculture and interesting politics and, and not being. I love that you grew up in Detroit and I grew up in Beaver Creek and <laughs> you just love the idea of like farmland and agriculture. I do. And now I live in Indiana where I actually get to have access to those things. Like, and I love it. Like it growing up, it was like so romantic to me. Like I remember like seeing cows on a farm on a drive and being like, oh my gosh, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I mean, I saw those literally every day going to and from school. <laughs> I do. I will. I won't lie. Every time I go back home, I go to Young's Dairy and milk the cows and feed the goats. So yeah, this is so good. <laughs> All right. Anyway, tangent. Bye. Well, yeah. So, um, so other caveats to make. So this case, uh, forensics are really important. So there will be a degree of detail. Uh, as far as some of these scenes, uh, and I'll warn you before the ones that are, are rougher, but I want to be able to like 
stay respectful, but also illustrate the degree of escalation that was going on um, mm -hmm. from case to case. And I think that's really important to kind of building the picture. So know that I'm uh, divulging enough to explain that, but I don't want to be like, um, you know, gratuitous Gory. about that. That yeah. is one of my problems with this case, if I may tangent for a second. So uh, this case has not had a ton of coverage in the media. And in, I think, 76, this book came out by Edward Keyes called The Michigan Murders, which, as you know, I had, like, my tattered copy of in college that I was obsessed with, right? Oh, yeah. It was always, it was an ever-present book in college, yeah. in our dorm. Yeah, totally. And, like, not knowing that it was actually very much so exaggerated. Oh. Yeah. And uh, he changed all the names, which uh, I think was a good gesture as far as like protection of victims and their families at the time. But because his book was kind of like the way that this entire case got kind of pushed into any kind of media spotlight, after, like outside of Ypsilanti uh, in Michigan, I think because there was that kind of like uh, disambiguation about names and kind of exaggerated facts and a lot of like invented internal monologue of the police and stuff, I think maybe partially that this hasn't gotten a ton of coverage because good information about it is actually really hard to find. Okay. That's one of my, and fears. especially when like, if that's like the prime source and it's not the most reliable. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. And so like I, as usual, I pulled everything from newspapers, court documents, and then, um, a, what I think was a, and I don't want to besmirch, uh, keys because I think he was really trying to, produce a good book about this, um, but a significantly more helpful book, um, Terror in Ypsilanti by Gregory Fournier is uh, much more like, it syncs up exactly with the press at the time and the newspapers and the courts and everything. So uh, that I found to be a much more useful resource. Um, than Also that. impossible to say that title without a Midwestern accent. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Terror in Ypsilanti? Oh, you're, you're right. You're right. <laughs> oopsie, oopsie. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, good book, I say. And then uh, the other thing is that because of there are some of those like sensationalized details, and each victim, like there are commonalities from the murderer's perspective, but there's more information about some than there are others. Uh, as far as like their lives and stuff. So I just, you know, if there seems like there's a lot of information about one and, and less about the other, it's not for lack of trying. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take you to July 9th, 1967. Ooh. Can you picture it? You're in Ypsilanti. <laughs> yes, I can. Okay, I'm there. I'm Good. there. So it's July 9th, 1967. We're in Ypsilanti. And uh, so EMU accounting student Mary Therese Flazar was last seen walking towards her apartment in Ypsilanti by a neighbor. Um, Mary Flazar sounds like she was really a wonderful person. Um, she grew up in Willis, Michigan, which is a farming community not too far from Ypsilanti. So she was kind of going to her sort of hometown college. Um, she was known as a super hard worker, really uh, motivated. She, uh, looking at pictures of her, she was extremely stylish, beautiful, um, warm person, super close to her family. She had six siblings and a lot of aunts and uncles and cousins, and they all kind of lived within the same area of farmland in Willis. So she really grew up with that, like very family 
atmosphere and mentality. And Cozy. yeah, and when you look into her life, like you can see that there's just a lot of love there. And her family actually runs a website to keep her memory alive, uh, maryflazar.com. Yeah. And it's just a beautiful tribute to her. And you can see kind of all of her interests and and her hopes and dreams. She loved music. Uh, she played a lot of instruments. She sang at church. She just sounded like a wonderful young person to know. Yeah, I'm really glad that her family is keeping that alive. That's nice. That's really sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So, so on that day, July 9th, she was uh, observed walking by her neighbor uh, and being followed by a clean cut, handsome young man in what was described as a blue gray Chevy. Um, so the car was trapped. I already don't like this. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> just wait. So the car was kind of following her really slowly and would like stop to talk to her. And then the neighbor saw her shake her head no a couple of times and keep walking. Okay, I have to stop this here because this has happened to me multiple times. Girl. and when I describe it to people, mostly men, mm -hmm. they don't get why it's so creepy because there's always men that do it. Literally, I think two weeks ago, I was walking my dog and this guy just like slows down his car and pulls over and starts talking to me about his like, oh, blah, blah, blah. You look so cool. And I never meet girls like you. And I think we'd be good friends, blah, blah, blah. You got your tattoos and your dog. Uh, I need an adult. <laughs> yeah. I mean, men think it's so benign and then you hear these stories. Exactly. And then I think it's so interesting when they're offended by our fear. You know, mm -hmm. I remember where I read it or who originally said it, but I just always think about this quote or this idea that like men are afraid of rejection, women are afraid of murder. Margaret Atwood. There you go. God. Queen. Queen. And I'm just like, it's so true. And like, you talk about that and it's like, well, maybe he was just trying or maybe he just wanted to talk or whatever. And it's like, that's fine. But there's a difference between like a genuine, like not scary conversation and mm -hmm. your car while I'm taking a walk. And if you don't- Like I am clearly defenseless right now. Yes, exactly. Other than your murder beagle. My murder beagle is so useless. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I love my murder beagle. He is useless. Oh my gosh. But he's loud at least. Yes, that is true. He's incredibly loud. Yeah. So that was like the last moment that she was ever seen alive was that interaction. So a little over a month later, or a little under a month, I should say, August 7th, uh, two teenage boys found her naked and badly decomposed body um, at an abandoned farm. And I want you to remember these roads, Gettys and Look Road. Yeah is the intersection. Gettys and Lafort, got it. Yep, so that intersection is in Superior Township, which is pretty rural, uh, just north of Ipsy. And uh, interestingly, it still is really actually quite rural. Like there's a little bit of, there's a factory of some kind across the street from this intersection, but otherwise it still looks, I think probably a lot like it may have uh, in this time. So um, she had been stabbed over 30 times. Her body was also missing its feet and a forearm. Oh. And yeah. And forensics determined that they had been severed manually, so not as the result of an animal. Ah. Yeah. And uh, thumb. This is a random weird question. Was her hand there? Because you said just the forearm. Uh, so she, the, well, yeah, no. The whole forearm down. Okay. 
thing. And then on the other hand that was still there, her thumb and parts of the fingers were gone. Ugh. Yeah. So that part okay. may have been animal foraging, but the, the bigger amputations were not. They were ruled to be by human hand. Okay. So she'd also been severely beaten and investigators thought that she was probably sexually assaulted. Uh, there wasn't physical evidence on her to verify that, but her clothing, she was obviously found nude and her clothing was folded up neatly nearby. So it was like folded up nicely, not uh, discarded. Somebody took their time. That's fucked up. I feel like that's the most fucked up detail. Mm, yeah, well, this next one is what gets me. God damn it. Yeah, this guy also, the, the killer, or there was evidence at least to show that her body had been moved three times within the same area three different on three different occasions so that killer came back to the site enough times to move her three times was she like posed at all yes um she was posed i think she was one of the ones that was posed he often would pose them arms up and then uh they call the i know police and investigators call the position of the legs uh they call the rape position which makes that's fucked up yeah um i don't like that yeah most of the girls that we're going to talk about were found in that position but that's i don't know it just makes me think of like some of the creepiest most gruesome like black dahlia cleveland torso murders like kind of thing yeah and that's we're going to get to some more grim details kind of as each murder increases so okay um what is also notable about the movement of the body is that the body was moved to increasingly visible spots okay So that's kind of really important to remember as part of the MO. As a sidebar, Gettys and LaForge is, uh, this intersection is going to come up over and over and over again and was also the centerpiece of my early ghost hunting days. (gasps) I love your early ghost hunting days. Yeah. This site uh, where Mary Flazar was found was one of the first places. And I know you're not a ghost person. I want to believe in ghosts. I just can't. Like, I think the idea is so cool. I wish I could believe in ghosts, but I have this Stupid science mind. <laughs> and because I'm an idiot, I... <laughs> <laughs> no! No, I don't know officially what I think. I think energy is energy. I could go. That's another tangent. But whatever, however you slice it, whatever it feels like to you, visiting the site where Mary Flazar's body was found specifically, I have never felt that way in my life. Yeah. There's one other spot that I'm hoping I can find information about for a case later on that kind of gave me the same feeling, but there was just this like, and of course I went to the site knowing what had happened there. So yeah, yeah, you know, that contributes to it, but the air just felt different. It's heavy and oppressive and frightening and you could just feel the, or at least I was just feeling very aware of the trauma of that spot. And yeah. This That's terrifying. Area. Like just knowing what happened in a location. Yeah, totally. And just the, I think what really gets me about this is like, he was moving her to increasingly visible spots and kind of setting her up each time, mm-hmm. basically hoping that she would be found and like kind of gearing it up to, to be discovered. And that is something that's going to continue throughout this. That's, uh, sorry. I, it reminds me so much of the Cleveland Torso murderer who yeah. I am eventually going to cover and I'm yeah. super psyched. But yeah, that just like increasingly visible, like give me attention, give me attention. Yeah. And this kind of comes to bear in like other ways later on too, but this is his first one that we know of. So two days later, her body is at the funeral home and a receptionist reports that a good looking young guy with dark hair comes to the funeral home asking to see Mary's body and take a picture as a keepsake for her family. Of course, they said no. 
the receptionist at the funeral home remembers him saying exactly this. You mean you can't fix her up enough so I can just get one picture of her? And the receptionist noticed at that point that he didn't actually have a camera on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just wanted to get back there. So of course she said mm-hmm. no, right? Yeah, creepy. So she says no, and he leaves in, guess what kind of vehicle? Whatever one you said before. <laughs> <laughs> a blue-gray Chevy. Yep. Okay, I was going to say a Buick, so I'm glad I did. <laughs> he did not, in fact, leave in a Buick. <laughs> So the interesting thing about this is that it then goes quiet. You know, obviously police want to figure out what was going on here. There was very little physical evidence at the scene. It's 1967. It's not like you're going to have great luck with forensics technology, you know, wasn't really there. So they didn't have much to go on and things went quiet for about a year. A year later on June 30th, 1968, another EMU student goes missing. Her name was Joan Shell, and she was last seen hitchhiking in front of the student union at EMU by her roommate, Susan Colby. Joan wanted to go see her boyfriend in Ann Arbor, and she was planning on taking the bus, but, and um, Susan walked her to the bus stop, but she missed the bus. So she's like, well, I guess I'll just hitchhike. And we're talking like a 20 minute drive, maybe. I mean, but hitchhiking is never a good idea ever. No, it sure is not. And uh, it's going to come up over and over and over again in this case. She was planning to go visit her boyfriend and she had missed the bus. So Susan walked her to the bus stop, like I said, and she starts hitchhiking. And then a red and black Pontiac Bonneville or Ford Fairlane witnesses could not come to a consensus, but they look pretty similar. Um, And everyone could agree that it was red and black. So they all saw the same car. They just couldn't decide on the make and model pulled up and it had three young white guys inside and they offered to take her and Susan. Why wouldn't you trust three young white guys? Right. I know. I always do. So Susan was like, I don't like the look of this situation. Can you please wait to see who else might come up? And Joan was basically like, you know, it's only a 15 minute ride pretty much. And I'll call when I get to Ann Arbor. That kind of settled Joan's or, um, Susan's nerves a little bit, but she didn't hear anything. And after three hours, she reported Joan missing, rightfully so. You know, campus police especially start looking at it and nobody knows where she is. We just know, you know, where she was kind of last seen uh, at this bus stop. On July 5th, her body was found. And I want you to remember this intersection to Earhart and Glacier. I know that one. Okay. Yeah. Um, So... (laughs) So her body was found by some construction workers working at that intersection. Okay. So this scene is also interesting. She was stabbed many times, just like Mary Flazar. And when I say many, I'm talking 30, 40 times. Had a very severe head wound and her skirt was tied around her throat. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So the, the police now are looking at some serious overkill. The forensics said that any one of those injuries could have killed her. Were the police connecting them at this point? They're about to. Okay. So, uh, but there's a year in between. So, you know, we have to kind of work to that, but they do eventually connect it. So her upper body was in an advanced state of decomposition and her lower body was very well preserved. So that that's also- creepy as fuck. Yes, it is. And so, uh, but it was very well preserved in a way that would have been natural if it had been in a cooler environment. So they didn't think it was refrigerated. The theory, I know it's so strange. So 
the theory was that uh, she may have been stored in like uh, a hole or a ditch where her upper body was exposed to the elements, but her lower body was underground. I, yeah, I'm laughing because I'm confused and uncomfortable. I know. And again, there was no blood or fluid around. So they knew the body had been moved and had been there for probably less than a day. Just looking at the surrounding area. So, what the hell is this guy doing? Yeah, I know. And like, whenever, like I said, like when this guy moved a body, he wanted it found. So he had her hidden for uh, a couple of days probably, and then moved her. And then he like half asses covering her with some clumps of grass, but it's clearly not that he really wants to cover her. No, it was not a real effort to conceal. At that point, when they're like, she's been moved at least once, the police are like, we're officially linking these cases. That does happen pretty much right away. And then they officially assign um, a team to work on what now looks like a budding serial killing spree. So Susan Colby was brought in to help do a composite sketch of the driver of the car. And uh, she described him as a young guy about their age, dark hair and kind of thin. And when you look at the picture, like the composite sketch, uh, he's got like kind of a skinny face, big eyes, dark hair, but this is where things get a little bit complicated. More witnesses came forward at this point to say that they saw Joan walking back down her own street in Ypsilanti. So either she never got to Ann Arbor or she got to Ann Arbor, came back and was in Ypsilanti walking down her own street. Okay. Yeah. Um, and she was seen walking with a young man who lived across the street from her and his name was John Norman Collins. So he was another EMU student, and uh, of course, the police questioned him. He also had been heard making some jokes about the killing to a colleague, and so that colleague also called the tip line and was like, hey, this guy is joking about this case. Good job, colleague. So, so was he a student? Was he pretty young? He was a student, yeah. He was an Eastern Michigan student. He was, I want to say, 21 at this time, Jesus. 21, 22, yeah. Like basically everybody kind of involved in this other than the senior detectives is very young. And there's a, another young guy who's a kind of a junior police officer that comes in clutch at the end too. So we love a clutch player. We sure do. And so this is like very much a young people's case in a lot of ways. And it is like really centered around this university community in a really interesting way, I think. So uh, Collins is questioned by police and he's like, I don't even know Joan. And I was with my mom over the weekend in Centerline anyway. So Centerline's a little suburb uh, of Metro Detroit, um, north of the city. So he was, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes away and police believed him. So they didn't verify the alibi and he didn't really look like the composite sketch and he didn't. So they let him go. So then they decided to try to comb through some records of men uh, with that type of car registered to them, and they didn't come up with anything particularly usable. So they're feeling like they're at a dead end again, right? Which sucks because Boo. here comes another body found. Damn it. Yeah. I mean, I know how many bodies there are, but still. Yeah. At this point, there's a bit of a gap. Joan Mixer was found on March 21st, 1969. It was like a seven-month hiatus, I guess. Um now, this one was interesting. So she was found at Denton Road Cemetery in Van Buren Township, which is actually in Wayne County, kind of right next to Romulus and Belleville. So it wouldn't be like by foot doable from Ypsilanti. No, that's a decent drive. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a hike. So she was found shot and she was covered up by a raincoat and she was partially clothed. Now, this case 
is interesting in its own right and was linked at the time, but in 2004, her murder was actually um, linked by DNA to somebody else. So oh. that's why I'm not going into a ton of detail. It's just important to know that at the time, police thought they were linked. Okay. So, yeah. Did um, she have the same kind of like multiple stabbings, posing, moving? No, she didn't. But because she was a college student, she was about the same age. All the victims so far have been like petite brunettes. So there's like a physical type going on here. But the one thing, the only thing really like forensically they had in common was a ligature around the throat. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. But she was shot, um, wasn't stabbed, and she was also fully clothed. And there wasn't her she was found i guess with her pantyhose down a little bit but um that doesn't feel like the same pattern though yeah it's not but if you're the police and you're looking at this like increasingly panicking community and you know it is a college student she's she looks kind of similar to the other girls that had had been murdered it was a an escalation and panic really starts to happen at this point yeah. and then our timeline starts to really pick up here too so Four days after Jane Mixer's body was discovered, uh, the next body was found. This was 16-year-old Marilyn Skelton. Prior to this, everyone that has been found has been a college student. And I was going to say he's getting younger. He's getting younger, although potentially not purposely. Marilyn Skelton's body was found behind an abandoned house at Glacier and Earhart. So we got that same intersection coming back up. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was a runaway. So there wasn't a missing persons report basically because her parents had, she'd run away before. She had a known drug problem. And uh, her parents had this mentality of like, well, she's going to come back. So they were a little bit kind of initially dismissive. And it was actually a close friend of Marilyn's that insisted on reporting her missing in the first place. So she had kind of, um, she started kind of running with a crowd of, uh, you know, known drug dealers and users and stuff in Ypsilanti and in Arbor, even though she was from Romulus. So that's another suburb, probably about 20 minutes to the east of Ipsy. But that's so scary though for like a 16 year old. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So she was only 16. And again, like she had this kind of pattern of running away and, um, her family would keep talking about like, oh, she's just like always hanging out with those hippies and everything. When her body was found on March 25th, again, just a couple days after Jane Mixers, she was actually already known by police because she had been working as a confidential informant um, in exchange for some leniency on some small drug charges that she had against her. Oh, shit. Yeah. So uh, her body, instead of being identified by a family, was actually identified by a police officer that she had been working with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this I one, almost kind of feel happier when somebody other than family can identify a body. Yeah, there's uh, actually some interesting dynamics with that idea in this case later that I'm curious to kind of get your take on. Okay. Some of it just kind of sits in a way that is interesting. And some of the police tactics, like they came under a lot of fire in the community about kind of how this case was going and um when you read and like look at interviews from the officers involved like boy they were trying and they were just <laughs> oh they were trying and they were grasping for everything they had like multiple jurisdictions involved looking for help anywhere they could get it but the public is just like so freaked out at this point that like they couldn't do any right in the eyes of the public even though they were doing 
everything they could really yeah so she was linked very early to the Ypsilanti Ripper um, even though some people had the theory that it may have been a a killing over drugs that didn't end up getting substantiated the only thing that they found in her past was that she owed somebody about $25 you know no one's the theory was that no one's going to kill her over $25. Even $25,1967. But like, there's, there's too many other, like the location, the age, like, yeah, to me, that's closer than Joan's murder. Totally. Totally. Jane. Jane. Sorry. There's a Joan and a Jane, but yeah. And I'm about to tell you about the scene and this one's tough, but she definitely fits the profile other than being a college student, but she looked older than she was. So if you look mm-hmm. at pictures of her, um, the picture that they kind of circulated in the paper very much looked the same age as the other girls, and she, I should say women. Um, and she was also seen hitchhiking in Ann Arbor. And so that, that also parses with what we know about the other cases as well. So this case is really, really jarring. The scene, I should say, is really good. Okay, throw it on me. Taking that deep yoga breath? Taking those deep yoga breaths. Okay. I need to take one, too. The Ann Arbor police chief said this was the worst scene he had ever seen in his career at that point, and he had been a veteran of 30 years in the police. So um, her official cause of death was excessive blunt force trauma to the head. She had also been tortured choked with her own shirt, beaten with a leather belt. And this one is is really hard to hear. She um, also, the killer had also torn off a stick and inserted it into her vagina. Oh. The other kind of big, so we see that escalation. It's the same trauma, the beating and the strangulation. She had also some stab wounds. So the same kind of like triple injuries that the other victims had. But this increase in brutality and this increase in essentially torture. The big difference on this one is that there was evidence there that this was actually the scene of her murder as well. So while the other women were moved, it looked to police like this is where this murder actually took place. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, They were able to say that because there was lots of disturbed earth and debris and stuff and blood nearby. So that made them think this was actually committed here at this scene. And also there was evidence that she put up a very strong fight. I think at this point, what is also really chilling about this case is that this guy is really operating in a very comfortable radius. Mm -hmm. He's got no problem coming back to the exact scenes. And if you like map these out, these locations, uh, by the end of this case, everything kind of exists within a 15 mile triangle. And there are more remote places. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like these were, they definitely weren't like main roads. And even now they feel like a drive in the country, but you know, he was moving, there were intersections. So Mm -hmm. that increases the likelihood too of a discovery, right? And even like to have this murder scene take place at an intersection, I think also shows an increase in his grotto. At this point, investigators are really starting to see the potential magnitude of it, right? Like there's this escalation. And now, even though like to their, in their mind, they figured the killer thought she was a college student, but the fact that she wasn't added a new layer of fear for the community. She's a 16 year old. 
you know, now it's it's not this like kind of townies versus college community thing anymore. Now it's it's everybody. It's all of us. He's going after our girls. Yeah, exactly. And and that's going to get worse in a minute here. No, um, stop making it worse. Oh, uh, well, girl, <laughs> I'm only on uh, like page five of my <laughs> literal <laughs> dissertation about this case. <laughs> <laughs> oh, buckle up, sister. <laughs> oh, Jesus. No. So, you know, there's at this point, like I said, there's five different jurisdictions involved. Um, and there's a, uh, at this stage, a 20 person task force. So when you think about like the population of this area, that's a lot of manpower devoted to this case at that point. Yeah. I want to recap a little bit before I get to our next victim. All right. I'm ready. Let's go. So, I'm mostly leaving Jane Mixer out of it, but um, again, there was this assumption at the time that she was a part of it. But I think part of like my issue with this case in the media is that even though her case was officially linked to somebody else in 2004, when you research this, it she's still very much tied to the Ypsilanti River. 2004? Yeah. God, that's such a long time in between her murder. Yeah. And Do you think it was because they were so, like, tied to it being the Ypsilanti River? I think in many cases it was. I can't remember the exact reason they decided to reopen it, but, oh, I can't give away totally exactly what happens here in the courts, but basically there was some DNA that was with Jane Mixer that they were able to link to a guy who was already serving time. So this guy, at least he was already in jail and he wasn't like running out around. This was, I think this was his only murder charge, um, but he was in for something else um, and he was definitely a bad dude, but he, he was serving time, just not for Jane's murder. So, uh, so recap it. Yeah, we recap it. So uh, they're all college students or could pass for college students, uh, Marilyn. They are all petite brunettes. So there's a physical profile going on here. Uh, even though Marilyn Skelton was not from Washtenaw County, she basically lived there because she was spending much more time kind of at this hippie commune than she was at home in Rockland. <laughs> and Romulus is basically like the last Wayne County community before you get to Washtenaw anyway. It's, it's pretty close. Um, they all had clothing or something tied around their necks. Generally speaking, he was stripping off a piece of their clothing and tying it around their necks. They had all been muffled by the insertion of some kind of cloth or clothing down their throats. Yeah, and he would again often tear off their own clothing and stuff it down their throats. Interestingly, there was missing earrings at a few hmm. scenes, uh, and every girl had pierced ears. Which in the 60s would have been less common than now. Oh, really? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, not a ton, but it was enough that the police noted it, that like they all have pierced ears. Okay. Yeah. And there were missing earrings. Like it would be in one ear, but not the other. So they were thinking at this point, maybe he's taking some trophies. Yeah. Yeah, exactly what I was thinking. And that's an easy trophy to take. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They all had, they all had multiple stab wounds, but there was particular brutality around the neck. And that was notable. All of them so far have been on their periods. Oh, weird. Yes. Um, there's another case like that. I feel like it's maybe the Boston Strangler. But there's another case. There are some similarities to the Boston Strangler in this case. And one of them is actually uh, going to come up in a little bit here. Oh, yay. I called it. Yay, I love it. Good, good job. <laughs> <laughs> and um, almost all of the murders were tied to like a rainy week 
or a rainy night. Okay. Maybe there was a weather pattern that this guy was kind of waiting for. But what what they kind of latched onto as a moment or a, an interesting idea was because they were all in their periods, there began this theory that perhaps the killer was a rapist who, upon finding out that they were on their periods, would fly into a rage and and murder them. Both Mary and someone I'm going to talk about soon, they were both last seen in miniskirts or like short dresses. So it also could have been like a pretty snap situation for this guy to figure out that that was going on. That was also one of the details that linked Jane Mixer to the other victims. She was found uh, with her panties down slightly so that you could see a pad. Again, like with Marilyn Skelton, you now you've got a 16 year old and now we've got like this panic kind of permeating the general community and not just, you know, the college community. You ready for another toughie? I guess. Murder Beagle came in to join me, so. Oh, little buddy. Murder Beagle, come to me. I need some comfort on this one. All right, so I opened up by reading that letter in the paper from Sandra Flazar um, yeah. on the morning of Don Bassam's funeral. So Don Bassam, next. She uh, was a 13-year-old student at West Middle School in Ypsilanti. So she was 13 years old. Oh, my God. That's yeah. so baby. I know. I know. So, you know, there's not a ton of information about her life prior to her killing, but, you know, she was a good student. She had, you know, friends and and seemed like kind of a normal, happy 13-year-old girl. Everything is tragic about this one. What is especially tragic about it is that she lived on the road that the other girls were found on. Oh, God damn it. Yeah. She went to school on April 15th, 1969, and came home to have dinner with her family. And then, so she lived with her mom on La Forge, and her sister and her husband lived next door. Often when she was, like, bored or just kind of needed a change of scenery, she would go over to her sister's house and hang out. So she had dinner at home with her mom, and then uh, her dad had died a few years prior, so her mom was a, a widow and doing the best she could. And so... Um, I know it was nice for her to have, you know, the sister and the brother-in-law next door. So that night she went over there after she had dinner with her mom to just hang out. She was bored. So she asked her brother-in-law, Bob, to drive her to a spot in Ipsy to go and meet up with just some friends. So it didn't sound like there was anything like extraordinary about that particular meetup or anything like that. She just knew that her friends would be out there and she was bored. So she wanted to go hang out with them for a little bit. So he drove her out there and she found her friend uh, Earl Kidd and some other friends and they hung out for about an hour, just like, you know, milling around and hanging out like teenagers do. The crowd that she was hanging out with was a little bit older than her. She was 13, Earl was 17, and the kids were mostly like older high school kids. But um, even though they were older than her, it didn't really sound like anything nefarious was going on from what mm-hmm. I can tell. I remember reading one article that said that um, her mom probably wouldn't be thrilled to know that she was hanging out with these older kids. Um, okay yeah i mean my mom wasn't thrilled with anything i did at 13 so (laughs) (laughs) i could see that (laughs) thanks (laughs) (laughs) love you love you friend oh boo so so don hung out with those friends for only about an hour or so it was only a one mile walk home so you know bob drove her but she was planning to walk home it was just a mile 
So she told Earl, hey, I want to be home before dark. So uh, Earl said he told the police it was probably about seven o'clock when they started walking and uh, he wanted to walk her most of the way because obviously there was some shit going down in Ypsilanti. Earl walked her um, most of the way and at about five blocks from home, he turned back and she said, hey, this will be fine. Uh, she's only five blocks away. Uh, we know that at that point or somewhere like close by, she ran into another couple of teenage boys that she didn't know, but she asked them if they would walk her the rest of the way home and they said no. Um, oh, jerks. I know. Yeah. And I think from what I could tell reading the paper, they felt really, really awful about it. But um, hmm, okay, I won't put more on them then. Yeah, but we're talking like four or five blocks. So they probably were like, it's only four blocks. You'll be fine. As it turns I mean, like 15, 16 year old boys, 13 year old girl. Yeah, whatever. Exactly. You know, they're in their own heads or whatever, but it wasn't fine. Everything that happens next is the timeline put together by police. She, the police think are thinking at this point that she was picked up or coerced into a vehicle probably because if there had been a struggle on foot somebody would have heard it she doesn't seem like she would have gotten into a car with anyone that is what i find interesting too like but it's it's just not it's not like a popular city block or something like that like it's going to be you know even if there was a struggle to get her in the car it's very possible that nobody's yeah so detectives think she was taken to an abandoned farmhouse uh, on the forge. So she was killed on the same road that she lived on. And there were a lot of kind of abandoned outbuildings. They figured that the killer had already scoped it out beforehand and was like ready to take somebody there. Evidence there showed that she probably put up a serious fight. There was broken glass with blood on it and um, there was lots and lots of disturbed earth and her body had a lot of mud on the feet and knees. So they think that she was able to run away um, and that yeah. he caught up with her. Again, she put up a fight. He caught her and strangled her with an electric wire from the abandoned barn that he was at. And uh, she was also stabbed repeatedly and had a cloth shoved down her throat like the other victims. God, he really does have a pattern. He really does. He really, really does. Uh, again, like she was a petite brunette, kind of fit the physical profile. Uh, another friend did tell the free press later on that she looked older than her age as well. So looking at her picture. At 13. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, she wouldn't have, I wouldn't think she'd pass for a college student, but I could see somebody saying like she didn't look or act 13. At this point, like everyone had kind of thought this guy was targeting college girls. But mm -hmm. at this point, it seems more like it's about the physical profile, the physical look, than it was about the background. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, interestingly, she was not found at the site of the farm, actually. So even though that was the kill site, he uh, drove her to a different intersection. On the morning of 417, so that's two days after she went missing, a trucker driving down the road north of the farmhouse saw something suspicious at the side of the road uh, at Vreeland and Gale, which are still dirt roads, very, very, very remote. Uh, and it was about two miles north of the farmhouse, but the killer had placed her close to the road that he knew what he had seen. As soon as he drove past it, he was like, oh shit, I know what that is. Wow. Yeah. He, from what it sounds like from the newspaper, he like literally leapt out of his car, found the closest house, um, and the dude that he met there, the homeowner, Hugo, um, couldn't find the truck driver's name, but I could find the other guy's name. His name is Hugo. 
they called the police together and um the police are like oh my god we've got another one and at this point we're talking like less than a month between so that timeline is really really ratcheting up right Mm -hmm. so they get there and they find her half clothed body at the side of the road there and they basically like are able to they they start covering such a big radius around there and that's how they find the um the farm property that was the kill site so they start kind of working backwards out of this radius and find that farm Mm -hmm. again like this is a new crossroads in this case like this is the youngest victim this is another one where like like okay Marilyn Skelton could have very easily like fit in with that university population Dawn did not like she was a 13 year old kid she was you know a middle schooler in Ypsilanti so not that there's not panic already but this is where it's like there's no dividing line at this point like oh yeah yeah, this is like one of our, you know, one of our kids, like our innocent daughters. So huge panic for families and for young women. And just, you know, like you talk about whenever we cover these cases, like you, you often hear about like, this is the case that made people start to lock their doors. There's like before this happened. And then there's after this happened, you know what I mean? So in the farmhouse, they find some interesting things that could potentially be for good forensic use. You want to know what they found? Yes. It's real nasty. Uh, I mean, I want to know anyway. I don't, but I do. Just just go for it. Go for it. I'm going. I'm going. So uh, they found footprints on the floorboards, which they pulled up. You know, they took the floorboards out so that they could uh, keep the footprints on file. They found a very large pair of blue underwear. Okay. Interesting. Now, it was an abandoned farmhouse. The problem is there would have been other people's stuff there because it was an abandoned house. So it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, like it's hard to tell what's actually forensic material for the case and what's just shit that's been left in this house, right? Mm -hmm. But some stuff that they were able to like link, you know, very easily. They found uh, four buttons that matched John's blouse. They found a bunch of broken glass with blood on it. And they found a semen-filled clump of tissue with a singular pubic hair. Oh. Yeah. So. Oh, nasty. And then they found what they couldn't find or what they couldn't match to Dawn's clothes was a gray button and some other fibers. Uh, Again, like abandoned farmhouse could have been anything, but the fibers were notable and fibers at the end of the day are what, well, nothing really closes these cases, but fibers are later what put somebody away. They were doing a lot of like blood typing. Yeah. uh, And they were able to find from the, the tissue that the semen there was from somebody with type O blood so they were able to say like okay at least we have a blood type for this guy but it's not like it's dna like we would know it now so i know that that was like a big frustration and um the sheriff at this time i love this guy like you watch him he ends up being controversial later and we'll talk about why but he was like just so smart like they took everything knowing that the technology was coming Um, fuck yeah yeah, and that will eventually close an additional case later on top of Jane Mixer's. Yay, so Sheriff. Yay for this guy. He's he's fantastic. Um, but he's about to get real pissed off because the killer is going to start taunting the police. A week or so later, the police come back to the farmhouse to, like, you know, do another sweep or find, you know, see what they could find. Uh, and the killer planted an earring and a piece of fabric from her sweater for police to find. So he's back and he's like, here's some more evidence for you, suckers. Um, oh, this guy. From the same girl. What the fuck? Uh. Yeah. yeah. And so at this point, we also know he's collecting trophies. Yeah. And the stripped fabrics become kind of a signature in this case. Like 
like I said before, like a lot of the uh, ligatures were torn from their clothing. He uh, had a habit, I didn't go into it much with the other ones, but he had a habit of like cutting clothes in half. A lot of them were found with like the bra cut in half in the center, the dresses kind of, you know, cut up from the center. Um, he definitely had like, that was very much a part of the profile and part of the signature for sure. Interest. I don't know. It's signatures like this to me, I'm always just like, you're going to fucking get caught, you prick. Well, like, I just feel like they get cocky eventually. They do, but it's 1969 at this point. And the person, oh, I can't, I want to give so many spoilers, but I need to just, <laughs> I can't do it. But okay, fine. I will retract all my spoiler inducing statements. No, you, you can't, like, you can't help it, but you're going to be real pissed off about how this goes down in court later. God damn it. Okay. Yeah. So as if this wasn't enough at the farm, two weeks later, the barn on that land goes up in flames in an act of arson. The fuck? Yeah. So eventually firefighters are able to get the fire out. And at a later date, five cut lilacs were found left on the rubble. I'm getting like increasingly angry at this guy. I know. Now, like... Here's where it's going to get more frustrating. Are you at like a hilt of frustration right now? I am like on the precipice of needing another Manhattan. (laughs) You need to go get a Manhattan. Tell me this more. Tell me more of this. Okay. So the barn fire was not done by the killer. Some drunk idiots are out. Yup. And they blow up this fucking crime scene because one of them is like some dumbass, like puts out a cigarette on a hay bale and suddenly this entire crime scene goes up in flames. Oh my God. Fuck this guy. Oh my God. Yeah. He felt horrible and he was convinced. As he should. Yeah. But he did not own up to the lilacs. So there's still the potential that the, the actual killer came to leave the lilacs. Now, I think. It's a real barn burner. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) We're in the Midwest now, people. Yeah. (laughs) So the barnstorm happens and the barn arsonists, they like I said, they didn't own up to the lilacs. I personally, my theory is I think the lilacs were still a hoax though. Like by somebody else in the community? Yeah, because there were five. But at this point, only the killer knows that Jane Mixer was not one of his victims. So he should have put down four lilacs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. He could just want to take credit for Jane Mixer. Yeah, because assholes like this like to take extra credit. They do. And he could have very easily just wanted the clout, you know, but... Yeah. But I kind of... The timing is very suspicious for me as far as that level of like intentionality. Like he would have had to know exactly what was going on at that fire to be able to get there to lay those lilacs out for police to discover at the right time. So it was the fire the same, like there was the fire and the lilacs are found at the same time. The lilacs are found in the rubble later. So um, Sandra Flazar's letter runs in the paper the morning of Dawn's funeral, like I said, and the tips just started flooding in, flooding in, which yay, right? Police are yeah. cool. 
um, we need tips. So they get all these tips and a lot of it is like some asshole husband that, you know, like is a domestic abuser and the wife calls in a tip that, Hey, my husband's a dick. Um, that kind of thing. <laughs> hey, the guy down the street from me is a crackhead. Come check this guy out. Like, so what they end up doing is like, they come through like all of the CD underbelly of Ypsilanti. Um, and are actually able to close some other like more minor cases because now they're talking to like every shithead that lives in Ypsilanti. And it was so it's like really fortuitous for them, but there was nothing on this case that was useful. So he's not in the CD underbelly, is he? He's not. And that is when the police start to think he's clergy or he's police. Ooh. Because there had to be a reason that he wasn't part of the CD underbelly and why any of these girls would get into a car with him, especially mm-hmm. Matthew Skelton and Don Basin, who were like young girls, you know? Um, so they actually, at this point, a Washtenaw County police officer is suspected and put under surveillance um, to the point that he was actually sent out of state so that the task force could search his, his home and his property. Oh, it's not over yet. And anxiety is like crazy in this town, right? Mm-hmm. So on June 9th, which is a Monday, those anxieties are confirmed when an unidentified woman's body is found again. So are we in still 1960? No, we're 1968, right? We're in 69. 69. Okay. Yeah. So um, now we're in June. So we're back in the summer. Um, and some teenagers, so it's teenagers, right? They are walking down North Territorial Road, north of Ann Arbor. And this road sidebar scares me because of another place I ghost hunted out there once. But <laughs> I love your ghost hunting history. Can we do like a mini episode about it? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I would love to. <laughs> um, so the police at this point are really hoping for a media blackout. But a reporter who keeps seeming to know what they know, as soon as the police know it, keeps leaking shit to the paper. Hmm. Yeah. So keep that bookmarked in your head. Um, Stupid fucking reporters. But she's unidentified. Um, The papers reported her as an attractive brunette and fitting the profile of the killing so far. So, like, we're losing track of time a little bit, but just for perspective, this is, all of this has happened in 22 months. Yeah, yeah, that's why I was, like, trying to get an idea of the date, like, yeah, this is, that's six murder, are we still at five murders? No, this is six. Okay, this is our six in 22 months, okay. So, this is where things get a little bit complicated as far as MO as well. So, she was stabbed, just like the others, beaten severely and sexually assaulted, um, this one was also shot one time. Oh, okay. Yep. And so that brings Jane Mixer's case kind of back into the fold because now they're like, okay, like Jane Mixer didn't match the MO. This matches everything else. And now I've got a bullet wound. This one also has a interesting new signature of uh, small pinpricks that were found on her um, that were not obviously not like a fatal wounding or anything like that. But this was the first one that they had seen Um particular pinpricks in the like her thighs and her pubic region 
I have like a BD Wong going on in my head. <laughs> As you should. Peterism. <laughs> <laughs> God, I miss him so much. I know. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, he would have been amazing on this scene. Although for 1960s forensics, I find these people extremely impressive. So, you know, the police know that they're looking at number six, but they don't know who this girl is. So the police put together a sketch based off the body. Um, And they actually, a couple of them um, actually showed pictures of the body around town to try to get an ID on her. Eek. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'd be comfortable with that. No. Yeah. And some of this, there's a moment later on with this one that kind of, I just, you can sense the desperation in the investigation at this point. That's what I'll say. When you start posting the pictures of the body, that feels like desperation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, we just need to figure something out here. So the, the sketch runs in papers across the state and Joe Callum, uh, a gentleman living in Kalamazoo saw it and knew that it was his daughter, Alice. Oh, God. Yeah, could you imagine? And this guy's grief is so palpable, and you're going to kind of hear why in a minute, but I can't imagine, like, opening up the paper. And, and it's not even a picture of your daughter. It's a picture of your daughter's body. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Here's the other unbelievable part. The police already knew that because... Uh, a roommate was taken to the morgue at about the same time to identify her. Okay. Um, so kind of at, as the paper was running, so it wasn't like they like did that on purpose, but um, that was, yeah, that wasn't malicious. It was just yeah. a coincidence. It sounds but like by the time he called, they were like, yeah, we, we know. Um, so Alice Callum, she was 21. She was a student at university of Michigan. So this is also our first college student. That's not EMU. Um, I was going to say Ann Arbor, like he's moving out of his comfort zone now. A little bit, yeah. But what we'll find out is that Alice's last known whereabouts are unknown. So we don't know where he picked her up um, exactly. And there's some, this one really bothers me. There's just something about this one that really, really bothers me. So they take Mr. Callum to the morgue to do a secondary identification of the body. And of course, it's, it's his daughter, Alice. And on the way out, he's just met by like a throng of reporters. And he's obviously this like grieving father. And he yelled at them. And this is what he yelled. This is directly quoted from the paper. I don't want her body. I want her alive. I didn't come here for a body. I'm going to tell them not to go to this university. It's too big. They don't give a damn about anything but money and politics. I'm not going to bury her. Let them bury her on the president's lawn. I've worked too damn hard to raise her, to send her here. I don't want her dead. Wow. Yeah, so this guy. And they like they catch a picture of him like mid-yell at the reporters, and it runs on the front page of the paper. I feel like pictures like that, because I, I haven't seen it, but I can envision it. Yeah, they always get used to like frame the parents in the super negative light, but really, fuck you, fuck the reporters. Yes, totally. Like this, and it is like you catch him like in the the pictures, like he's in the middle of yelling. Like there's just unless you really kind of stretch your imagination or have been through something like this, how could you possibly possibly know what that man is going through? And like literally, the reporters are catching him as he's coming up the stairs from the morgue where he identified his 21 year old daughter. It's kind of surprising that they couldn't figure out her last known whereabouts. Um, Yeah, that's weird. So here's why Alice is 
last known whereabouts uh, don't exist. So the problem was that there was a party going on at a popular club in Ann Arbor that some people say they saw her at, but nobody that actually knew her well saw her there. Okay. Yeah. Um, an old boyfriend of hers was there and he was questioned pretty heavily. Um, and he was polygraphed by the police. Um, and he said he didn't see her there and he passed the polygraph. And again, in those days, polygraph was definitely like, (laughs) they used it. They loved it. They relied on it. Like everybody and their brother in this case is polygraphed. And when they pass, everybody and their brother still is. We just, mm, that's true. We know that it's useless and we still use it. Yes, that's totally true. And in this case, they were like, okay, he passed. So whatever, like we're done looking at him. Um, and so the boyfriend said, no, he didn't see her there, the ex-boyfriend, but there were some other girls there that were like adamant that they saw her at the party. Okay. Personally, I'm apt to believe the old boyfriend that actually knew her because he was cleared anyway. He had an alibi. Like he would have known if his ex-girlfriend was at a party, right? Like, you know, if I know if my ex is at a party girl, (laughs) (laughs) I know it's her run all the way the fuck away. We're not going. So, we're not going. We're leaving. Bye. Yeah, we're gonna go find another party. Later, I'll tell you about how today I went to TJ Maxx and circled the parking lot three times and waited for somebody to leave that I recognized their car. So, what they were able to find though was actually another murder site. They found uh, blood, her shoes, and some buttons at, and fibers at the Washtenaw Sand and Gravel Company on you guessed it, Earhart Road again. He sounds like a hometown boy. Yeah. Like he sounds like an Ipsy boy. Like to be comfortable with that area. Yeah. Exactly where to go. Yeah. He knows what streets are busy. He knows which ones aren't. He knows which farmhouses are abandoned. Yep. Exactly. He knows where the sand and gravel company is. So Alice's case is, it's a tough one. And well, so we'll go over the murder scene. So at, we're at the Sand and Gravel Company on Earhart. Um, like I said, there was blood and shoes and lots of buttons and fibers. Uh, this one, I believe, was when where the police found that the killer had also torn off fabric from her shirt and stuffed it between her toes. Weird. Every single case, there's this profile. And you can see how like big I'm gesticulating right now because I'm like, uh. Like, I hope you can They're see. big gesticulations. Yes. Um, like, every single scene, there's something new for the police to be worried about. Like, after dawn, they're like, maybe this is clergy. Maybe this is police. You know, they've got all these different things to be worrying about. This time, there is a huge amount of semen. So, multiple perpetrators, potentially, is what the police are now thinking. And... The bullet resembled the one found in Jane Mixer's case. However, a bullet resemblance in 1969 is not the same thing as it is now. But to them, it looked, we knew it was a revolver. um, So they thought, okay, these ballistics are similar enough that now we understand that there might be another link there. So the police go to her apartment, to Alice's apartment, to see what they can find. They Mm -hmm. found undeveloped film. When they developed it, they found a lot of pictures of Alice um, and a man at various farm sites, abandoned farm sites posing. Oh. Yeah. 
including a photo of Alice's head in a makeshift noose. So they figure out that this guy is this guy, Ben Kologi, and he's a classmate of Alice's. So here's something that I feel kind of weird about. They bring him in and ask him to identify Alice's body. Why? I mean, why precisely is unknown, but my guess is to smoke him out. They're thinking, okay, if he reacts in a way that is not normal to this body, that would look suspicious. Again, the, again, 60s, so I'm going to like try not to be too judgy, but what's the like, quote, right way to react when you see your girlfriend's dead body? Exactly, exactly. And like they know it's her. Yeah. This is just gratuitous. Yeah. And like what they put this guy through as far as questioning, like, again, if you think you're looking at your suspect, I don't know what I think the ethics there are, but like they take him down to the morgue, they pull out Alice's body and Alice's body was not in good shape. Yeah. And Ben Kologi uh, talked to the paper and kind of described what he saw and it was bad. I mean, like they didn't have her eyes shut. So he's looking down at her and she's looking up and it's just, it's horrible. It's horrific. You know, they take him down to the morgue and then they take him up for questioning. Mm-hmm. And they ask him about the photo with the noose in it. And I guess, so what he tells them is that they had been working on an art project. They were visiting all these different abandoned farms and Alice saw the, um, the wire and she like thought it would be a funny picture. I mean, I would take that picture. You would, I know. So, I mean, <laughs> It's not I'm a, a realm of possibility. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love you. Uh, so, yeah, like, it's not outside the realm of possibility, right? Like, people would do that and think it was funny. Like, I mean, me in college, I would have done that and thought it was funny. Exactly, yeah. Or edgy, like, you know, I was all up in the lit mag in college. Like, I would have thought that was, like, a cool edgy picture to take, you know? Yeah. You know, it's not something to hang your case on or anything like that. And then they start grilling him about his sexual relationship with Alice and they're, they're trying to get him to say something about their, you know, their relationship. And all he said was like, we're friends. We've hooked up a couple of times. It's never been serious, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. So he eventually was cleared, but not before his name was leaked to the press. This guy, like he said later, like he lost friends. He, yeah you know, people hated him and maligned him because, you know, they thought that he had an involvement with this, um, but he was eventually cleared. So, you know, at this point, police are trying really hard to keep their information close to the chest. Like, like I said, there's all these details, all these signatures. Um, they don't have that much to go on. So as we all know, like a media firestorm can be a death knell to a murder investigation. So it was really important that they kind of keep their, you know, keep their information close. But that really started to frustrate the community, right? Like, understandably. Yeah. So people started to really, like, channel that fear and and into anger, you know? And uh, they saw it as a lack, they saw that lack of information as a lack of progress. And that's when it gets scary is when people start to get angry because please don't tell me they start to try to take things into their own hands. Uh, yeah, they do. But... God damn it. In a way that I think is kind of funny and not kind of scary, but like okay. it's very human, I guess. You know, like they're seeing this lack of what they see to be a lack of progress and this increasing danger and all that. So, what they did is that uh, some locals raised money to hire a famous Dutch psychic. Shut up. Why do they always 
bring in the psychics. I know, I know. And this is actually the same psychic that worked on the Boston Strangler. So when you said that, I was like, oh boy, I got a link for you. Oh my God, shut the fuck. Okay, I want to believe in ghosts because I think that's cool, but fuck psychics. Well, super fuck this guy. Like... (laughs) Because he comes in and he starts making all these promises, like we're going to, I'm going to identify him. Um, you know, I'm going to tell you exactly how many more victims. And so what they would do is he claimed to work off of vibrations from people. Yeah. Earth vibrations. That's right. So they would give him like, um, you know, an article of clothing or a picture and he'd be like, I have the vibrations. And they're near a body of water. Exactly. Like there's trees. Okay. It's Michigan. Yeah. It's an open field. It's Ypsilanti. Yep. Pretty much. It's a woman. Oh, no shit. They're in distress. Oh, fuck you. Yeah, exactly. So that's the kind of stuff he starts picking up on. But he, of course, starts backing off the details when the investigators are like, okay, but then what? Okay, but then what? He eventually makes two very specific assertions. First one that the perp would have uh, in his possession foreign money and that he would have a homemade ladder. Did he have Canadian pennies on him when they found him? <laughs> yeah, but no. And so, but yeah. Uh-huh. I'm a psychic. Yeah, you are. You do it. <laughs> Because, you know, in Michigan, you never have a Canadian penny in your wallet. <laughs> like, right. I probably have more Canadian pennies in my wallet than American ones at this point. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the homemade ladder was an interesting added detail. And then he's like, and there's going to be 19 total victims, which, of course, investigators are like, okay, fuck this guy. But the public is yeah. like, 19. We only have six right now. Are you fucking kidding me? So the psychic launches the community into a fucking panic. Totally. Yeah. Also, Um, what counts as a homemade ladder? Like a fucking rope? I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, and also how do you make a ladder? I mean, it's really easy. It's all two by fours. You're a two by four. (laughs) I fucking wish. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how to make a ladder. Sorry. (laughs) It's a literal A-frame and two by four. Okay, Bob Vila. Thank you. He raised me, basically. (laughs) So, yeah. And then uh, he started getting all these headaches and Mm -hmm. decided to go home after he got a series of threatening phone calls. Well, that was the vibrations giving him the headaches. Definitely. Definitely. And all the murder is giving him the frightening, uh, threatening phone calls. Yep. It's the ghosts. Exactly. So our psychic friend, Mr. Peter Herkos, takes us to the end of part one. What are your thoughts right now? That you're fucking leaving me on a psychic and I'm mad about it. (laughs) I know, right? Uh, Things are really going to start to get really crazy. Not that they haven't already been crazy, but... I was going to say, they've been pretty crazy. Is there more semen? There's always more semen. (laughs) (laughs) This is true crime. This is true crime. There's always more semen. (laughs) Who wants to listen to that one? (laughs) Speaking of which, we need to plug our social media presence. That's right. We're on social medias. I know we've mentioned them in other episodes, but now they're for real. Yes. And we need to be more deliberate about mentioning them. And we would love to connect with those listening to us. So make sure you follow us on Instagram. We are at Midwretched. 
and like us on Facebook. And we are also happy to hear from you with commentary, although be nice, we're Midwesterners. We are only used to niceness. Mm -hmm. um, questions and also episode suggestions at midratchet at gmail.com. Yeah, we love suggestions. Kind ones. Kind ones. And if you're going to be mean, send a picture of a beagle. Yes. I'm not even. And a cat that's not Satan. There you go. There you go. That'll do it. All right. All right. Do we, we need a cool like little outro tagline. We do. What do, what do we do? Come for the birds, stay for the curds. They <laughs> <laughs> oh, really loud and hang up. <laughs> uh, t-shirt and I was looking for I keep getting Facebook ads because I'm a fucking such an easy target and there's this one like sweatshirt that keeps getting advertised for me and it's a little black hoodie and it has a ghost on it and in the ghost it says anxiety and I'm like oh no <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> why am I such a target oh my god I have one that keeps popping up it's a green sweatshirt that just says plants and that's mm -hmm. it and I want it so bad <sighs> So bad.